welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Jim Melnick concludes our series on prayer and addresses the question, God answers prayer. Does he? And now, here's Jim. Good morning, everybody. Thank you to David and Vicki and the Sunday School Network. Uh, your opening this morning really is my message in a in a nutshell, and I'm almost wondering if I don't even need to be up here. But since you've all paid big bucks, I know to come and hear somebody speak at 11:30. Maybe I'll continue, and hopefully, I can give you more than your money's worth. When we talk to God, the world calls it prayer, but when God talks to us, the world calls it insanity. The world uses the expression, well, that was an answer to prayer. But for so many people, it's just an expression. The thought that God exists, let alone would want to be a part of our lives, is just too much for some people to comprehend or to accept. I wonder how many people deny God's existence, because if he is real, then they would also have to be accountable to him. It's easier just to convince yourself that there is no God let alone one who would answer prayers. This is the fourth in a a four-part series that we're looking at on the world of prayer. We looked at what is prayer. We looked at God wants me to pray how. We looked at God wants us to pray how. And today we're looking at God answering prayers. And since this is a sermon on prayer, let's take a moment and do just that. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning. We come before you as a group of people who have dedicated their lives to you. We humbly accept who you are. We worship you. We love you. We adore you. We pray your blessing upon us this day and that you will open your word. We will apply it to our lives and that we would be game changers to the world around us. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Now, when I saw my name beside the title of the sermon, I thought, well, this should be a pretty straightforward message. God answers prayer. Well, of course he does. But then it's those next two words that got me thinking. Does he? That got my thought process a whole lot more complicated all of a sudden. But if you're here this morning with the hope that I can tell you specifically how God's going to answer one or more of your prayers, I'm afraid you're going to be disappointed. I can't tell you how God will answer your prayers because, well, quite honestly, I'm not God. And I'm not about to tell you it's a multi-step process where if you follow these rules or steps, God will automatically answer the prayers that you have given up to him and give you what you're asking for. There is no multi-step process or formula to get God to answer the prayers the way you want. One of the things we have to keep in mind when it comes to prayers is that we often see just that one tree in front of us. Whether it's a family member you're praying for, whether it's a need that you have, whether it's an illness for yourself or someone that you love, we often see just that one tree in front of us. But God sees not only the whole forest that we're a part of, but he sees the whole universe. God is omniscient, and we are not. And I want you to keep that in mind this morning. And prayer, as we have been learning, is more than just asking for God for our wants and our needs. It's so much more than that.
The Bible is full of examples of how God answers prayers in people's life. And I think the best way that we can look at prayer this morning and God's answering a prayer is by looking at these examples and see how those examples can apply to our lives. To look specifically at how people prayed. To look at the lessons that these people learned. To look at the attitudes that they had towards God in their prayer and apply those principles to our own prayer life. Let's start off by going way back in the Bible. All the way back to where Abraham wasn't even called Abraham. He was still called Abram. And I've titled this first example, God's Covenant with Abraham. Sorry, with Abram. And in brackets, how will this be? When Abraham was still called Abram, God came to him in a vision. And we can read about that in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. And all these readings will be from the uh, New International Version. Genesis chapter 15, starting at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he told him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Dave Jenkinson quoted from this passage last week, and it's a wonderful example of how God works even before our prayers are spoken. Here in the Bible it said, God spoke to Abram in a vision. You might not think of this as a prayer as we commonly think of prayer today, but I've included it as Abram and God were in conversation with each other. And because prayer is communication with God, I've included it in this list of examples of God answering prayer. God made a promise to Abram, a covenant. The covenant was that Abram's offspring would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. When God said to Abram, look up into the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. He didn't say count the stars you can see, but he simply said count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Today, scientists can estimate the number of stars in the sky, but we cannot physically count them. Only God has that kind of vision. And it's the vision of omniscience that allows God to be working out an answer to someone's prayer before that prayer is even spoken, before that prayer is even thought of. See, before Abram ever said to God, what can you give me? God put into motion the necessary events for his covenant to be fulfilled. Earlier in chapter 12 of Genesis, Abram went to Egypt with his wife Sarai in order to escape a severe famine that was going on. Abram and Sarai went to Egypt and Abram said to his wife, when we get there, tell them that you're my sister. Don't tell them that you're my wife because I'm afraid if you say you're my wife, they will kill me because of your great beauty and take you. And so Sarai did catch the eye of the Egyptians and their leadership, and they took her to Pharaoh's palace. And because they thought she was Abram's sister, Abram was allowed to live. And this is where God took control of the situation 
And the Bible says God inflicted Pharaoh's household with severe diseases. When Pharaoh found out the truth about Abram and Sarai, there's a couple of ways to pronounce it. I'm not quite sure which is the right one. Um, but when Pharaoh found out the relationship that was actually going on with them, he politely sent them packing. It was after that that God spoke to Abram in a vision with the covenant that would eventually lead to the founding of the nation of Israel. Abram and Sarai would need to remain together for that covenant to ever come into fruition. And I wonder, years down the road, when Abram became Abraham and Sarai became Sarah, I wonder if they had a conversation after their son Isaac was born. Did Abraham ever say, do you remember when we were way back in Egypt all those years ago and God kept us together? He had never done that. We would, never had a, we would never have had a son together. God knows our prayers even before we formulate them. And it's often when people look back in the rearview mirror of their life, do they begin to understand the reason for all the things that happened in their life back then. And they can start to put together all the events as God led them through their life to the point where they are now. Sometimes we have to look rearward to make sense of God's answer to us whatever that answer may be. A second example in the Old Testament. I've titled this one, David's Petition, and in brackets, Please Save the One I Love. This is the petition that David made to God to spare the life of his child, his infant son. This is a tough one, and it still has a lot of relevance even to this day. The story of David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba is very well known, but what's often less talked about is the consequences of that relationship. See, a child was born to David and Bathsheba, but it ended with tragic results. And we can pick up that story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting at verse 13. And this picks up the story where Nathan had just confronted David and he had revealed the sinful uh, relationship that he had with Bathsheba. Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 13 to 20, it reads, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up off the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. 
Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. But here we have a plea by a father on behalf of his son. Did David's prayers for his son fall on deaf ears? Was God not listening to him? If you believe that God is omniscient, that is all-knowing, then you must also conclude that God hears all prayer. In First Peter, First Peter chapter 3, verse 12, it reads, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Now, Peter is quoting from one of David's own psalms. That psalm, Psalm 34, verses 15 to 19, it reads, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have, a righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. At first glance, you might ask, why didn't God answer David's prayer by saving the life of his infant son? I kind of was thinking about that one. In David's own psalm, he states, a righteous man will have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Now, if you look closely at this psalm, though, David is speaking about a physical safety, a physical rescue of himself from the enemies that were pursuing him at that time. Many of the psalms are written by David during his lifetime while he was in danger personally. David's prayer in 2 Samuel is not about saving himself, as he speaks of often in the psalms. Rather, it's a prayer that his son, whom God had stricken ill because of his sin, would be spared. God will discipline those he loves and who are his. He will correct those he loves just as an earthly father looks to correct his children to prevent them from greater harm. The world will look at the story and say, why would a loving God take the life of an innocent child? The life of David, maybe? But why the child in all of its innocence? The simple answer would simply be to say, God is God and he will do as he sees right. Again, it goes back to God seeing the whole forest while we see just that one tree in front of us at that moment. Sometimes God answers his prayer, our prayers. And sometimes those answers astound us because we only see with limited eyesight, whereas God's eyesight is infinite. As in the story of Abram, God sets in motion events all leading to the greater good that he had established. The world would still say, but why the innocent child in all of this? Why should he have to die? I think as Christians, we look at death not as a punishment or a tragedy, but rather as a graduation. When David's son died, he was immediately in the presence of the God who created the universe. And as a parent, as hard as it would be to lose a child, especially an infant child, knowing that he is in the loving arms of the God who created them would make all the difference. This is the hope that we have as Christians. This is the hope that the world cannot understand. As well because of our limited eyesight, we also don't know what God was saving that child from 
if he had not called him home at such a tender age? What would have been in that child's life had he grown up in the environment that he was born into? We would never know, but we do know he was with God in paradise. The fact, and this is important, the fact that David was able to get up, make himself presentable before God, go into the temple and worship God, speaks to David's trust and reverence for God. Whether it was the valley of the um, the valley that David walked through when he wrote the 23rd Psalm, or whether it was the tragedy that he knew was to befall his son, David never stopped trusting God. Sometimes the answer is no. And if we can also do as David did, that is get up, dust ourselves off, and continuing trusting God, he will not abandon us. David pleaded with God to save his son, that God's answer was no. This is a lesson David would never have forgotten as he went on to be used by God as the ruler of God's chosen people. There is an example of answered prayer in the Old Testament that threw one of God's prophets for a loop. I've titled this one, Habakkuk's Question, and in brackets, Where are you, God? Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Minor not because he was less important, but rather minor because the size of his book was smaller in nature, and it was very specific in its content, as opposed to some of the other books of uh, the prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. The book of Habakkuk begins with a complaint, a complaint coming from Habakkuk. The prophet saw injustice, violence, and evil in his own country. And he cried out to God, Where are you in all of this? Why do you remain silent in all of this? Why don't you intervene? It's interesting that all of the other Old Testament prophets, they always carried God's message of divine judgment to the population of Israel, Judah, they always cried out to the nations, unless you repent, God is going to punish you. But here Habakkuk is saying to God, why don't you come to punish the evil? God answered Habakkuk's prayer, but not in the way he had anticipated. God said he was sending the Babylonians to punish Judah. God's word described a ruthless savage army that would tear Judah apart. So Habakkuk complained a second time. Could this be justice, punishing Judah with a more evil nation? Now here's an example of God using evil to punish evil. Habakkuk waited for his answer to that second complaint. We don't know how long he waited, but God did answer. And his answer is one of the best explanations we have in the Bible of God's attitude towards evil. Have you ever prayed to God, and then after God's response, replied, This is not what I had in mind. God pointed out two certainties to Habakkuk. The first certainty, the violent, proud Babylonians will be paid back with the very instruments that they used on other nations. The very weapons that they had used on others, they will be destroyed with themselves. And indeed, the Babylonian nation was eventually destroyed. Evil may dominate the earth, 
but evil always wears itself out. As well, we have elsewhere in the Bible the knowledge that a day is predestined when God will wipe out all evil for good. The second certainty that God pointed out to Habakkuk has to do with his character. Though he may be silent for a time, God will never be silent forever. The Israelites also experienced that when they were enslaved in the country of Egypt. For 400 years they were slaves. That's a long time to wait to be delivered. But God did deliver them. In God's answer to Habakkuk's second complaint, Habakkuk's attitude changes from that of complaining to now one of rejoicing. Habakkuk, knowing all that was going to befall Judah, ends with these words, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables to me to go on to the heights. What begins as a question mark for Habakkuk ends with an exclamation point. The answer to Habakkuk's question, why, is who. His confusion, why all the conflict, is resolved with the comprehension of who is in control, God. Habakkuk's a very small book. It's only two pages in my Bible. But if you're looking for an example of how God answers prayer, this book is definitely worth checking out. Sometimes prayer comes from and requires patience on our part. Our timing is not God's timing. And waiting is tough. Sometimes so is the answer. In God's answer to Habakkuk's second complaint, he stated, he stated, but the righteous will live by his faith. Habakkuk was able to do that, even though he saw the pain that was coming to Judah because of its own wickedness. This verse from chapter 2, but the righteous will live by his faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, speaks of how faith leading to righteousness. Galatians 3.11 speaks of how the righteous will live by faith and not by the law. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, it speaks of how the righteous will live by faith in spite of the persecution that they endure. When we pray, God will answer the prayers of the faithful. And, and this is the harder part. The faithful will live by those answers. Unless you've ever experienced an answer that is completely unexpected, you'll never know how strong your faith is. Unless you've ever had your faith tested, your faith, my faith, unless it's ever been tested, we'll never really know how strong it is. We know how we would like to think it is, but we'll never know unless it's tested. And if we can live by faith regardless of that answer, God will credit it to us as righteousness. And we'll be listed in that chapter 11 of Hebrews with that whole long list of people who God credited to them as righteousness because of their faith. And what a hall of fame any Christian would like to belong to. Well, let's move on to some examples from the New Testament of how God answers prayer. I've titled this next one, Jesus' Prayer of Anguish, and in brackets, not my will, but yours. Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three synoptic Gospels, record this prayer that Jesus made to his father just before his arrest and crucifixion. This prayer, which took place in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, has to be 
the prayer of greatest anguish that's ever been recorded in the Bible. Reading from Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 44. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, my study Bible has a notation that these last two verses, the verse about an angel coming to minister to Jesus and about his, his sweat being like drops of blood, in that notation it says that some of the earlier manuscripts do not include these verses, but there is enough evidence to support them that they have been included in our own Bibles. There is enough credibility for them to exist that they have been included, and so much so that the angel came to strengthen Jesus in his greatest time of anguish. And in verse 44, his, his sweat was like drops of blood. This is a picture of enormous anguish in a time of Jesus' life. Now, some interpret this verse to mean that Jesus' sweat wasn't really drops of blood, but rather it was exhibiting characteristics that could be found in blood. But there is a medical condition that exists out there that can occur at times of extreme stress that would cause a person's sweat to be mixed with blood. Hematidrosis or psychogenetic hematidrosis is a rare medical condition in which under extreme stress, capillaries around the sweat glands can actually burst and a person's sweat mixes with the blood. However you interpret this verse, I think everyone can agree that the anguish that Jesus felt was extreme. This condition, psychogenetic hematidrosis, is something that's, that has been documented in the lives of convicted criminals who have been sentenced to death and are facing their execution. Jesus Christ knew what was coming. His attitude during this time of prayer is, in my mind, the greatest example of servanthood that has ever been recorded. Mark records the words of Jesus as follows. This is in Mark chapter 14, verses 35 and 36. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is so incredible. And what's so incredible about this prayer is that Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was to be his fate. See, even a convicted criminal who knows he's about to be executed still has hope for a reprieve, even up to the last moment. But Jesus not only knew he would be tortured and tortured to the extreme, not only did Jesus know that he would be crucified and die on a cross, but perhaps the greatest pain that Jesus knew was going to come was when he knew his father would have to turn his back on him as he took the sin of the world upon his shoulders. Jesus knew he would rise from the grave and be victorious over death and once again be with his Father. But it was what he would have to face beforehand that caused him the greatest amount of anguish. When Jesus prayed this prayer, he knew the answer. He knew what the answer was going to be before he even prayed it. Don't miss the significance of that. 
Sometimes when we pray, we also know what that answer is going to be. And the question is, will we have the same spiritual fortitude that Jesus did to carry out that answer in our lives? If in my greatest anguish I can cry, Lord, please take this burden from me, but if I must walk the path that is before me, I pray that as your servant I will walk it in obedience to your will. If I can pray that and mean it, God will grant me the strength and the spiritual fortitude for the journey. He did so for Jesus and he'll do the same thing for me and for anybody else who loves him and calls him Father. Jesus knew the answer to his prayer, if it is possible, take this cup from me, was no. Yet he prayed it anyway. And it's never a bad idea to voice your prayer and your distress to God, even when you know what the answer is going to be. Well, there's another prayer in the New Testament, a corporate prayer. David quoted from that this morning in our, in our opening. And uh, I just kind of smiled when I, when I, I heard that because this is so cool. This is what, uh, what God had laid on my heart, and obviously he laid it on David's heart as well. But I've titled this next one, The Prayer of Believers, and in brackets, Give Us the Ability. See, in the early days of the church, as recorded in the book of Acts, Peter and John had been out attesting to the life of Jesus, and they were arrested for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. After they had healed a crippled man, they addressed the crowd. And they told the crowd about Jesus Christ, who he was, what he came for. And he was arrested by the Sadducees. And he was told, don't talk to people like that anymore. And they let him go. Well, Peter and John went back, as the Bible says, to their own group of people. And what did they do? They had a prayer meeting. And I'm going to read this again because it's important. Acts chapter 4, verses 24 to 31. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Well, here's a definite answer to prayer. Here's a group of people who prayed, God, give us boldness and the ability to speak your word. And God answered them. He shook the room they were in. He filled them with the Holy Spirit. And they went out with great boldness to preach the word of God. His answer was a definite yes. Now, it's very easy to start thinking, well, we should all make this prayer. We should all pray to God. God, give us the same boldness that we can go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ the same way this group of people did. But I'm going to express caution here. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we should all be able to give an account of the hope that we have and all give an account to Jesus Christ being the reason for that hope that we have. But the caution I have is that we must not assume that a specific prayer like this from a group of people at a specific time in their lives should automatically be everyone's prayer and that the answer given to that group of people will be the same answer that God gives all of us. 
That goes for any of the examples that we've been looking at this morning or that you can find in the Bible. We need to look at their prayers and we need to look to them and see how the lessons that they learned, they apply to their lives. We look to, we need to look to their attitudes that they had in their time of prayer. We need to look at the relationship that they had to God in their prayer. And we need to take all those principles and apply them to our own prayer life. This, gospel, this group of people in the book of Acts had a specific prayer and a specific result to that prayer. Another group of people, even if they make the same prayer, may get a different answer from God because he may have a different plan for that group. Some time ago, I heard a missionary presentation at Northern College. This was a missionary who had spent time in China. And she talked about how she was part of an underground movement to bring the gospel and Bibles to people in China. And just like the people in, in the book of Acts, the Chinese government did not want them spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to the population. But they worked quietly. It was with quietness and subtleness that they were able to spread that gospel message. Both groups had the same desire, but God used them differently to achieve his results. Whether individually or corporately, we can look at examples in the Bible of prayer, see how God answered those prayers, but we should never assume God's answer to those people will automatically be God's answer to us. We should look at the attitudes of the people as they prayed. We should look to the lessons that they learned as they prayed. We should look to the relationship that they had with God as they prayed. And then we should take those attributes and apply them to our own prayer life individually and corporately. One other thing we have to do when we're looking for an answer to prayer is that if you're not looking for an answer to prayer, you're not going to find one. If you're not there looking, it's just going to float right by you. But when you are looking for an answer to prayer, Keep these things in mind, these three things. Firstly, God has sacrificed greatly for us. Just look at his son, Jesus Christ. But even though God has sacrificed greatly for us, God will not sacrifice who he is for us. What I mean by that is God will not answer us outside of who he is. If you have an answer to a prayer and it's not keeping in God's character, that answer is not from God. Secondly, our relationship with God is not one of a partnership. What I mean by that is you cannot negotiate with God what your answer is going to be. God will answer you with the answer that needs to be given. Thirdly, God is not an investment bank. You can't take all of your good deeds that you've done upon this earth and use them to bargain with God. God stores them up for you in heaven. They're part of your inheritance but they can't be used on this earth to buy an answer that you want. Now, there is one answer to prayer, and I've left this answer to the very end because it has a certain uniqueness. I've left it as a postscript, a PS, if you will. This is a prayer that God will answer every single time, and he will answer this prayer the same way for every single person. And this is the prayer of salvation, or some people refer to it as the sinner's prayer. For everyone who looks at their life and realizes their sin has kept them from God and his promise for an eternity in heaven. For everyone who prays to God, asking for forgiveness for those sins and truly desires to turn from that sinful life and turn to God. For everyone who believes Jesus Christ is God's son, sent to redeem the world through his death, burial and resurrection. 
For everyone who prays this prayer, God will answer the same way every single time. Welcome home, my dear child. I've been waiting for you. I have prepared a place for you and written your name in my book of life so that no one can deny the inheritance that I have reserved for you in my kingdom. There's no greater prayer that we can ever seek to know that God will answer the same way every single time. Well, our prayers and our prayer life is as varied, is, is as varied as that is a bumblebee and a woodpecker. And I'll close with this. Have you ever looked at a bumblebee? I mean, really looked at him. Looked at the relationship between the bumblebee's body and its wings. It has tiny wings compared to its body. In fact, by all aerodynamic and aeronautical principles, a bumblebee should never get off the ground. But try telling that to the bumblebee. Or how about the woodpecker? Have you ever really thought about a woodpecker? You parents with teenagers think you bang your head against a wall. A woodpecker does, does it eight to 12,000 times a day. And God created this creature with the ability to do that. He created its skull structure with a shock absorption system to, to prevent its brain from being concussed every time it does that. It doesn't mean much to you or I, but it's a game changer for the woodpecker. Now, about the only two things these two creatures have in common is that they fly. Well, our prayers, our prayer life, is as varied as that of a bumblebee and woodpecker. Whether you consider your prayer like a bumblebee or whether you consider it like a woodpecker, whether you think my prayer can never get off the ground or whether you think I just feel like I'm banging my head against this wall, the thing that they all have in common is that God hears our prayers as varied as they might be. God will answer the prayer of the faithful and he will count it righteousness towards our part. But we need to be able to follow him, whatever that answer will be. And we need to follow him in love towards God and in love towards each other as we do that. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time we've had together. I thank you for your word that is your Bible that we can open, that we have these stories, these accounts of people, how they prayed, how you answered, how you worked in their lives. Lord, these people went through their own struggles, their own trials, their own tribulations, but you stood with them. You stood beside them. You carried them when their legs could not hold their weight, and you will do the same for us. Lord, keep us mindful of what you want from us, of what you want for us. Help us to be faithful to you and your word that we will follow your will, your answer to prayer, regardless of where that journey leads us. Remind us, Lord, that as varied as our journeys are upon this earth, they all end, the same, all end in the same place when we put our trust in you. And that's an eternity with you in glory in heaven. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for that inheritance that we have. And thank you for this time together. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.